to know His presence and to, to know His path, to know how He calls us to live. And you may be wondering, you know, why, what's with the raising of the hands and these different expressions of worship? Maybe that's something new for you. And I was just thinking that, you know, for me, there's, um, the Scripture does talk about lifting up holy hands, and that doesn't mean that we're perfect, but it means that because of what Jesus has done for us, we can come into this place of saying, God, I, I can come into your very presence because of what Jesus has done, and, and we're forgiven because of Jesus. We're, we're made new because of Jesus. Those places in our lives where, where sin once had us bound up, we can find freedom, and we can live with hope and peace in a way that only God can bring. And so coming to God and, and, and beginning to express ourselves in worship, it, uh, raising our hands, for me, it acknowledges, God, I just want to lift you high today. And this is an opportunity as a church family. I want to join in and lift your name, lift you high, just, just honor you, God. Acknowledge your goodness, acknowledge your greatness. And then sometimes as I'm raising my hands, I'm, I'm reflecting on the words that we're singing and I'm agreeing and, and maybe there's a, a line in that song that says, God, I need you. And I'm, I'm just thinking, yeah, that's me. And so I raise my hands to acknowledge, God, uh, what we're singing about here is, is something that's real in me that I need. And then sometimes raising hands is just a symbol of, of intimacy, and it's like a, a child who comes to their father or their mother and just raises their hands, and their parents pick them up and hold them. And so sometimes that's what raising our hands can be. It's just an expression uh, of, uh, of just uh, intimacy. God, I, I just want to offer myself to you today and to know your presence in my life. And so, um, so that ex- those expressions of worship can be powerful and and maybe you've wanted to express yourself that way, and you just haven't had the courage. Well, have courage. If that's stirring in you, have courage just to, just to reach out to God and begin to, um, perhaps in a new way, invite Him to, uh, to, to be part of your life. Well, I'm going to ask you to turn to uh, 1 Kings, if you have your Bibles, or maybe it's on your phone. But 1 Kings, we're going to uh, look at the Word of God today. Before, before we go, and I just want to acknowledge again um, that today is Mother's Day, and we want to honor mothers. In fact, even if you're not a mom, we want to honor uh, you as a woman today. Um, sometimes this is a difficult day. This is a day where some people just feel like they can't come to church because there's, they know it's Mother's Day. They know that there's usually an emphasis, and, and perhaps that brings up some painful memories within you for whatever circumstance um, that, that that may touch in you. Sometimes it's painful, and we want to acknowledge that as well, that uh, some of you have, have lost your mothers or you haven't had the love of a mother in the way that mothers are intended to love. Or perhaps you haven't been able to be a mother the way that you wanted to be a mother, and we want to acknowledge that today. This is not meant to be a Sunday where you feel pain, but, but that we would, just, we would just come and honor you in whatever um, position you're in, whatever place you're in, and ask that God would bless you. That's our heart today. Would God bless you as a mother, as a woman? And would you know, um, uh, Audrey, is it going to be just quick? Because we've got lots to do this morning. Yeah, thank you. Hmm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Audrey. Your mom passed away when you were five. Mm. 
Um, thank you for sharing that. And so Mother's Day, uh, we just pray that it's a blessing, that today in some way you feel blessed. Thank you, Audrey, for sharing that. I didn't realize that that was a, that was a tradition. And so what we have done traditionally as a church is we've given out carnations to all of the moms. And last year we decided we're not going to do that. We're going to send that money, as you've heard, um, to, uh, to help children to get to camp. Uh, and so anytime between Mother's Day and Father's Day, so dads, you're not going to get, you know, the kind of the, the wrench or whatever we normally give you on Father's Day, right? You're not going to get that. Uh, instead, we're going to send that money as a church that we normally would spend on giving that to dads, to moms on Mother's Day. We would send that. And then we just say, if you want to be part of that, just give. Last year, we were able to send, because of your generosity, we were able to send 300 kids to camp. That was over $3,000 that came in. Amazing. And so thank you for deciding, I'm going to make a difference in someone's life with $10, where they're going to experience just the fun parts of camp, and they're also going to hear the hope that there is in Jesus, that God loves them and he wants them to know him. And so anytime between now and Father's Day, just write on your donation, if you'd like, you know, above your ties, if you'd like to just say, yeah, I want to be part of that, um, just write down uh, Kids Camp or Loads of Love or Ed Dixon. We'll know where that needs to go. Before we get to Scripture today, the evolution of motherhood. I read this maybe four or five years ago. I was thinking about it today, uh, and I thought you might enjoy this again. Um, but parenthood changes everything, right? We know that. If you're parents, changes everything. Uh, it also kind of changes uh, with each successive child. There's differences that come. And, and so here, here having, having successive children, um, here's how perhaps it changes motherhood. So the first topic is preparing for the birth. Okay, first, second, third child. First baby, you practice your breathing religiously. How many of you went to those Lamaze classes, dads, and you went with your wife, and maybe that's not a thing anymore, I'm not sure. Um, first baby, you practice your breathing religiously, preparing for the birth. Second baby, you don't bother practicing because you remember that last time breathing didn't do a thing. <clears throat> third baby, you ask for an epidural in your eighth month. Um, another topic, how about worry? Sometimes parenting, you know, we worry a bit too much um, in, in our role as parents. First baby, at the first sign of distress or a whimper or a frown, at the first sign you pick up the baby immediately. Second baby, you pick the baby up when her wails threaten to wake your firstborn. <laughs> Third baby, you teach your three-year-old how to rewind the mechanical swing. <laughs> Couple more, going out, your first baby... Uh, the first time you leave your baby with a sitter, you call home or you text your sitter five times in the course of the evening. Second baby, just before you walk out the door, you remember to leave a number where you can be reached. And then your third baby, you leave instructions for the sitter to text only if she sees blood. <laughs> One more. At home, this is my favorite. First baby, you spend a good bit of every day just gazing at the baby. Second baby, you spend a bit of every day watching to be sure your older child isn't squeezing or poking or hitting the baby. <laughs> and your third baby, you spend a little bit of every day hiding from the children. <laughs> well, children are a blessing. There's no doubt about that. And uh, if you're a third child here today, don't get a complex, right? Um, you're, you're equally loved. But I want to talk this morning, uh, and, and I was thinking about this title. The title of my message today as we look into 
the life of this guy named Elisha is Oxen and Arrows. And I thought, you know, that's not really a great Mother's Day title. Might be a bit better for, for Father's Day, right? Oxen and Arrows. But uh, I can't get something out, out of my, my heart. It's just been kind of coming back to me over and over again the last number of weeks. And so I want to just this morning before we go to take a look at this, a life of a guy named Elisha. Now, you may be more familiar with the name Elijah, and we get those names mixed up. Elijah was a guy that is called to be a prophet, and a prophet was someone in the Old Testament that God used to to kind of call people back to himself. How many of you know that we tend to wander away from God? We wander to other things. We begin to set our heart affection on other things. And, And when God began to see that happen in the nation of Israel... He would call someone, a prophet, and he would say, I want you to go, and and I want you to begin to call people back to me because they're wandering, and and as they go down that path, they're going to experience pain, and and I want them to experience my presence and my blessing in their life. And so there's these guys that were prophets, and often they had a tough message. Uh, Often, uh, you know, sometimes they were a bit strange, and they would do symbolic things that were meant to paint a clear picture of the waywardness of our hearts and of God's calling us back to himself. And so Elijah was a prophet, and he, uh, he came to the, to the moment where God said to him, Elijah, I want you to call someone who's going to be your successor. And I want you to go to a young man, his name is Elisha, and I want you to go and just basically, you know, throw your mantle on him, throw your cloak on him, and that would symbolically let that young man know, Elisha, you're called to following God's path through your life, and, and I want you to, to follow my path through your life. And so Elisha is this young guy, and there's two moments in his life that I want to just look at today that I believe speak to us uh, in our walk with God. And the first moment, the first snapshot, I'll read it for you in 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 19 to 21. So here is Elijah. He's going to find this young guy, Elisha. He's going to call him to God's path for his life. I'll read it for you. So Elijah went from there, from uh, the mountain of God where he heard God's instruction. And he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat. Elisha was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. He's farming. Elijah went up to Elisha and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen, and he ran after Elijah. So Elijah just walks by him, throws his cloak on him, and just keeps walking. But Elisha kind of understood what that meant. It was symbolic, but it was very clear. He runs after him and he says, let me kiss my father and my mother goodbye, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? In other words, go ahead, do that. So Elisha left him and went back, and he took his yoke of oxen, and he slaughtered them, and he burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat, and he gave it to the people. He puts on a barbecue, and then they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and become his attendant. There's two points today that I just want to touch on. The point is, the first point is this, that we learn from Elijah. Elijah was a young man that decided deeply and and, in a very specific way that he was going to follow God's path for his life. That when he heard God's call on his life, when he heard God say to him through Elijah, Elisha, I I have a path for your life. I have a path for your life that involves following God. In that moment, Elisha had a decision to make, and I, I love the, the decisiveness, decisiveness that we find in this young guy, where he just simply said, yes, I'm going to follow God's path for my life. You see, God had a vision for Elisha, 
God had a purpose for that young man. Every one of us have a different, a different path, a different specific path for our lives. But when we say yes to God, we can trust that God will begin to do something in our lives that will help us to understand, God, what is it that you're calling me to? What are the things that you want to do in my life, God? As, as, I, as I commit my life to you, we can begin to know God's uh, work in us. And so for Elisha, there was, there was something that he needed to leave behind. In fact, it was, it was kind of that idyllic life. You know the American dream? We've heard that. You know, it's just kind of a, a concept that we learn about in school and in, 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 in our studying. And the American dream is, is simply this, that you can come from any place in life and, and as long as you work hard enough, as long as you keep the dream ahead of you and in front of you, that, that we live in this land of opportunity. North America is a place of opportunity. And so you can begin to find that place where you're financially secure, where you have a nice home, where you have everything that you need and more, and that's how you can enjoy life. It's the dream, right? It's the American dream. Well, Elisha was kind of already living that in his circumstance. So here's a young man, and we find that the text is kind of specific. It says that Elisha was, was uh, farming or plowing with 12 uh, teams of oxen. Now, you can't be one person and drive 24 oxen. And then it goes on to say that he was actually driving the 12th team. So what, what we're learning here about Elisha is this young guy was in charge of a large farming operation. He was entrusted. He, he had other men working under him. He had 11 teams of oxen that, that these men, he was in charge of that field. And so there would have been a lot of property. There would have been a lot of responsibility. He, wanted, he needed to make sure that the work got done. And so Elisha was a young man that, that knew uh, a position of influence already in his life. He was in charge of other men. He was in charge of a large agricultural operation. And so he already knew this place where he was a, a young man of influence, where he already had people that were answering to him. And, and, and so that was part of the life that he was living. We know that with an operation that large, there would have been some affluence as well. He would have enjoyed uh, uh, the means of life to enjoy life. He would have enjoyed provision probably beyond what he needed. And so Elisha was a young guy that was kind of living the dream. Early on, he had attained a lot of things already. And so we begin to see that, that he had something to, that he needed to set down in, t- in order to take up a new path for his life. He would have enjoyed a level of comfort. It's interesting that Elisha was from a region of the Jordan Valley. So uh, topographically, geographically, he lived in, a, in the Jordan Valley. We live uh, in, the, in the upper Ottawa Valley or the Ottawa Valley. And typically valleys are places where uh, the earth is rich. And, and in his day, that was, that was what, what, you know, what you needed to find in an agricultural society. Actually, the, the region that he lived in, the English name of that region was actually this, Meadow of Dancing. So whoever named that place where Elisha was living, they decided to name it Meadow of Dancing. Now, wouldn't you want to live the rest of your life dancing in meadows? Well, maybe not, okay? Maybe that's not a great analogy for some of you. You're thinking, no, that sounds pretty fruity to me. But um, what, what this is telling us, we can't miss this is that Elisha was living, kind of living the dream. He had affluence. He had influence. He lived in a beautiful geographical area. And so when God decided to call Elisha and say, 
there's a path that I have for your life, young man, Elisha. I want you to follow my vision for your life. That was no easy decision for Elisha. He had something in his mind. He had, he had a lot to lose, perhaps, but, but he understood this. He knew that in following God's call on his life and God's plan for his life, that it was much better than anything that he had already experienced. And yes, there were things that he may have had to lay aside in order to walk a new path with God, but God's path for him was the one that he wanted. He didn't want whatever vision he could conjure up. He simply wanted to say, God, I will follow you and I will give you my life. I will trust you with my future. I will trust you with my decisions. I will trust you to follow you. And so in that moment of decision, Elisha says yes to God, and he knew it would be worth it to follow God's path for his life. And maybe you're here this morning, and you're feeling this tug to a new kind of life. Maybe you're not living the dream. In fact, you're living in a place where there's hopelessness and despair, and and God is beginning to stir your heart in his direction. And you're beginning to think, I wonder if there's something about this idea that God really loves me. Is that true? Is it true that God has a path for me to walk in, that I can experience his presence in my life? And perhaps today, you're beginning to feel a stirring to live a new way of life. And I want to encourage you that if that's you this morning, that you would just keep your heart open to God's still small voice, that if he is beginning to stir a hunger in you for him, a hunger in you to know God today, would you just continue to keep your heart open to him? You know, there's, a, there's an image that, that we have as Elisha burns his plowing equipment, he kind of, and, and then he creates this meal for the people and he, he sacrifices uh, his livelihood uh, in order to bless people before he begins to journey on this new journey. But I think about the sacrifice that Christ gave for you and I to allow us to walk in a new way of life. And this morning, I want to just remind you, or perhaps tell you for the first time, if you've never understood this before, that we need, we need Jesus in our lives because he's the only one that overcomes sin and overcomes death and, and gives us uh, the forgiveness of sin that we need. You know, you and I, are, we're sinners at our core. You know, how many of you know that? When you begin to raise children, you don't have to teach them to misbehave. And, and so we need, we need to be uh, renewed inwardly. We need someone that can come and begin to allow us to live life differently, that can touch our, our own sinfulness. And Jesus, by, by what he did on the cross, he allows us to live a new life that we no longer have to be slaves to our inward sinfulness. But as we put our faith in Jesus and the fact that he took your sin and mine to the cross and and he, he paid that debt that we owed before God, that then by putting our faith in what he's done and by asking him to forgive us of our sin, the Bible says that we walk in a new place from that point on. There's a newness that we can experience in our lives. There is a freedom inwardly that we can experience as God begins to do his work in us. There is a transformation that we can know. And perhaps this morning you've never understood the sacrifice that Jesus gave for you and that was his life so that you could know forgiveness of sin and you could walk out of a place of knowing God's transformational work in your life. If you've never accepted Jesus, never asked him to forgive you of your sin, never understood that he is, he's able to save you from those things. He's able to, to erase the distance between us and God. I want to encourage you today to consider that. And it's simply by faith 
that we put our faith in what Jesus has done for us. It's not about you trying harder. It's not about you keeping a list of do's or good and bad, and hopefully the good outweighs the bad. But one day when we step into eternity and we stand before God, who has created us, if we put our faith in Jesus, we'll simply be able to point to Jesus and say, I'm here standing before God because of what Jesus has done. And because I simply put my faith in him. And I began to live a new life because of the presence of God in my life. So perhaps you're here this morning and you realize, I need, I need to walk in a new way. I need God's presence in my life. It's through Jesus that we experience that. And so Elisha said yes. And then he went public with his decision in a very clear way. Someone put it this way, that Elisha literally cooked his old way of life and ate it for dinner. <laughs> Elisha literally cooked his old way of life, which wasn't bad, right? It was okay. But God was calling him to something new. And he, he, he decided, this, I'm going to be in this, I'm going to be all in. And so he, he, he put on a party for his friends and his neighbors, and he said, you know, God's, I'm going to follow God's path for my life. From this point on, as a young man, I'm going to be listening for God's direction in my life. I'm going to be pursuing God's vision for my life, and I want you to know about that. And I want you to celebrate with me, because there's a new life that God's called me to. And so he just, he's a bold young man that just says, if, if I'm going to follow God, it's going to be with everything. I'm not going to be a half-hearted you know, I'm half in with you, God. No. And I love this example that Elijah shows us as a young man that, that he was just being very clear that he was all in, that he was not going to turn back and turn his back on God, but he was going to follow God's path for his life. I'm answering the call of God, and I'm going to follow him. That's what we see in his decision and in his actions. I'm giving my all to follow God. And I believe that church, perhaps the message for us and by, by church, I simply mean those who, who have decided to follow God. That I think the message for us as we look at this, it's a reminder that, that when, you know, when we follow God, we're coming to this place, I believe, that kind of that, that mushy middle ground is starting to disappear. And that we're coming into a time and a season in our culture where if you're going to follow God, it's going to be all in or it's, or it's going to be all out. And that middle ground is starting to fade And church, I want to encourage you today that if you have decided to follow God, that you would be all in. That you would not be in that mushy middle ground where there's compromise and there's half-heartedness, but but you, you would just take a lesson from Elisha today and you would say, God, I'm going to be all in with you. And whatever that means for you, perhaps it's laying something aside that, that you've been putting your hope and your trust in, and you're saying, God, I'm, that's no longer where my trust is. God, I, I want to know you wholeheartedly. And Elisha is that example for us. And church, that, that, that middle ground is just fading away because we're coming into a place where if you, if you decide to follow God, there's going to be a cost that we haven't had to pay before. And I want to encourage you to make a decision today. God, I'm all in with you. I'm not going to hide my decision to follow you any longer. And I want to be a young man. I want to be a young woman. I, I want, in whatever season of life that I'm in, I want to be passionate about following you, God. And so God is calling us to a full and a deep commitment to him. And perhaps this morning, you, are, you would say, you know, that's not me, but I want it to be. I want to know what it is to be a, a passionate, all-in follower of Jesus today. Now I just ask you to just ask God to give you that strength. That there would be no more 
kind of wishy-washy middle ground for you, but that you'd be a passionate follower of Jesus and that your decisions would reflect that, that you would take a stand and not be afraid to say, I am following God's plan for my life. And so this is the first snapshot that we see of Elisha, and then we'll come to the second. So the first is simply that he said, God, I'm going to follow your path. And that, I'm going to do that wholeheartedly. There's no halfway with me. I'm going to be wholehearted in my, in my decision to follow you. The second moment we find in 2 Kings chapter 13, and we close with this image of Elisha. You can turn there if you want. 2 Kings 13. And I'm going to read that for you. I'm going to begin at verse 14. 2 Kings chapter 13 and verse 14 to 17. Let me set the stage for you. This is 65 years later. Okay, so we've seen this moment in this young man's life where he said, God, I'm all in. I'm following you. He's lived a lifetime of experiencing, seeing God do amazing things in his life and through his life. There's been ups and downs. There's been challenges and trials and joys and and, and victories. And here he is 65 years later, and he's at the end of his life, and he's on his deathbed. And word begins to get around, Elisha is going to die soon. And so the nation of Israel knew him as a prophet. They knew him as the voice. That young man was a voice for the nation to say, turn back to God. Turn away from your waywardness. Let's turn back to God. Let's follow him. For 65 years, he had been that voice calling people to a wholehearted devotion to God. And here he is at the end of his life. There's a king that is ruling the nation of Israel at that time. And he hears about this and he comes to uh, Elisha's bedside. I want to read this for you as it unfolds in 2 Kings 13. Now Elisha was suffering from the illness from which he died. Jehoash, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him. My father, my father, he cried, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. Elisha said, get a bow and some arrows, and he did so. Take the bow in your hands, he said to the king of Israel. And when he had taken it, Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. Open the east window, he said, and he opened it. Shoot, Elisha said, and he shot. The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Aram. See, the Israelites had been kind of pillaged and plundered by, by their enemies uh, from the king of Aram. You will completely destroy the Arameans at Aphek. Then he said to the king, take the arrows, and the king took them. Elisha told him, strike the ground, and he struck it three times and stopped. The man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times, and then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it, but now you will defeat it only three times. Elisha died and was buried. You know, this final image of Elisha's life is an interesting one, and it may be a bit perplexing. And, and, and here this king comes, and he's broken about the fact that Elisha is going to die. How many of you had someone in your life that's just kind of been that rock and that steady place in your life, and, and they're about to pass away, and you begin to think, you know, what am I going to do without that person? They've always, they've always been such a source of stability for me, and, and they've been my rock, and I can't imagine what the future looks like without them. And I think the king was sensing this where he was thinking, you know, what, what's life going to be like without Elisha? He's been such a clear voice for our nation. He's been such an example of what it means to to be all in with God and to not compromise. 
And so he comes and he weeps. He weeps at Elisha's bedside. And Elisha just begins to give him some instruction. And he says to him, I want you to get an arrow and I want you to get a bow and some arrows. And so the king does that. And then he said, I want you to open the east window. And then, and then he calls, so Elisha was, was so unwell he couldn't get out of bed. And so he calls the king over and the king comes over to him with this arrow, with this bow. And, and Elisha said, I want you to shoot the arrow out that east window. But, but Elisha put his hands on the hands of the king. And together they shot that arrow out of that east window. Now, the king didn't need Elisha's help to shoot that arrow. The king would have been well-versed uh, in, in how to, to handle a weapon of warfare. He was strong enough to pull that bow back. He didn't need Elisha's help. And so we've, we see in this, in this picture, there's some things that are significant about it that, that talk about this idea of impartation. And there's something about uh, Elisha in his heart. You see, Elisha, even on his deathbed, he had a vision for freedom. He had a vision for future generations. And as he envisioned Israel, he envisioned them living in a place of freedom, that they would no longer be harassed by their enemies. So even on his deathbed, Elisha was a visionary. He may have been weak physically in that moment, but he had a vision for freedom. And he wanted the king to catch what he was feeling and sensing. He wanted the king to also have a vision for the people of God that they would walk in freedom, that they would no longer be in this place of oppression in their lives. But he wanted to impart that to the king. Have you ever felt as though someone imparted something to you? You know, impartation or to impart is to transmit or to pass on or to confer. And Elisha, in that moment, he wanted to pass something on to the king that would affect future generations. There was an impartation that he wanted to give to the king. He wanted the, the king to catch something of his heart, something of his vision for freedom for future generations. And we can read in different places in Scripture this idea of impartation. We won't do that this morning in, in terms of, uh, for the sake of time. But the thought that we can take away this morning is that each generation imparts something to the next generation. And that may be good and that may be not so good. But that's the reality of each generation, that we impart something, we pass something along, we confer something to the next generation. And so I want to speak to you mothers just for a moment today, and that, and that is to say this, that you have a role in the lives of your children, that God has called you to impart something to them. And I believe what he calls you to impart to them is simply this, this faith in God that would say, God, we look to you for, for direction in our lives. God, we look to you for provision. And as you care for your children, as you nurture them in whatever stage of life that you're in, that mothers on this Mother's Day, I want to encourage you that you have, you have something to impart and may your heart be this. God, help me to impart to my children, to my grandchildren, help me impart to them a deep faith and a deep trust in you. You see, when Elisha told the king to open a window, he was very specific. He said, Elisha, I want you to open the east window. There would have been other windows in his room that day, but it was the east window. And the significance of that is this, that whenever Jews would pray, they'd always find a window that was facing east because that was symbolic of facing the temple where, where, they, where God's presence was. And, and so what they were saying as they faced east when they prayed is, God, you are my hope. God, I put my trust in you. 
And whenever I come to this place of prayer, I'm going to face in the direction of the temple because that in their day was where God's presence was as they knew it. And so when Elisha said to the king, open that window, he was saying to the king, he was saying, Elisha, king, this is where your hope is going to be. It's going to be in God's ability to touch you and to meet your need. This is where you're going to find freedom in your life. It's in, it's in keeping your life oriented toward God. It's not in other things. And this morning as mothers, I want to encourage you to just keep your heart open to God and then begin to impart that same faith in God to your children. And so each generation imparts something to the next generation. And Elisha was being very intentional. He wanted the king to catch what was in his heart. A deep, deep faith in God's ability to meet his need. And then he went on and he said this. He said, King, it's time for you to do something. And I want you to take the arrows and I want you to strike the ground. You know, every generation imparts something, but here's the other side of the coin, is that each generation must take hold of God's promises for themselves. Every generation must take hold of God's promises for themselves. And what that means is that we need to walk in a place of faith and and a place of being all in with God ourselves. We can't ride on the coattails of our parents, of our grandparents, or of that person in your family line that, that was just known as someone who knew God and that and that had such a deep faith in God. No, this morning as we sit here today, the call on our lives is to take hold of the things of God for ourselves. And as you do that, perhaps there's patterns in in your generation, in your family line that will begin to change. But every person has to make their decision. What am I gonna do with God's call in my life? How am I gonna respond when I begin to sense God's drawing in my life? What am I gonna do? Am I gonna say yes or am I gonna turn the other way? And so Elisha was now saying to the king, okay, I've, want, I've tried to impart something of a deep faith in God to you symbolically through this action, that God's going to bring victory, but now it's your turn to take up the promises of God for yourself. And we find in the king a half-hearted response. And he kind of had, he, he, he didn't respond like a man who was deeply convicted uh, of God's ability to bring freedom. He responded half-heartedly, and he kind of just struck the ground three times. And, and Elisha was actually angry, and he said to the king, you know, in essence, he said this, man, that was such a half-hearted response to God's promises that he's going to bring you victory. Man, you need to take hold of God's promises for yourself. There needs to be a passion and a perseverance in you that you will stand on God's promises, and you will persevere to see God's goodness in your life that you will persevere, you will not give up on God, you will continue to passionately pursue God so that as you do, you have something to impart to the next generation. And the fact of the matter is, church, that we can't ride on the experiences of people who have gone ahead of us. We can learn from them. But what about us today? Are we experiencing God's power and presence in our lives? Do we have a hunger for him? Or have we just become weary and we're just ready to give up? And I wonder this morning if there's some of you that are just weary and you can't even strike the ground anymore, so to speak. You can't bring yourself to pray one more time for that circumstance that seems so impossible. You can't bring yourself to once again face that relational pain in your life and you're just weary. I want to encourage you today. Stand on the promises of God 
And I can't promise you that that means every, you know, every situation is just going to be a bed of roses for you, but I can promise you this, that you will have a story of God's faithfulness in your life to impart to your children and to your grandchildren. Because you have decided, number one, I am going to follow you wholeheartedly, God. There's none of this halfway for me. God, if I'm, if I'm in, I'm all in. And secondly, you've decided, I need to stand on God's promises. I need to take hold of what God has for me. And I can no longer rely on those, or those who have gone on ahead of me. I can learn from them. I can be encouraged from them. But from this day forward, God, I'm asking that your promises, that I would learn to stand on them for me. That I would learn to pray for my family with a sense of conviction and authority. That I would learn to persevere through difficult times just as I've seen my parents do or my grandparent do just as I've seen others do, but I would have the intestinal fortitude to do that for myself. And then in so doing, I would begin to have stories, God, of your goodness that I could pass on to other generations that come behind me. And church, I just, I just that, that image of, of, of Elisha saying, now, now strike the ground, and just that half-hearted response from the king, I think I don't want to be that person. God, help me to persevere. God, help me to take up the promises of God in my life. God, help me to have faith to believe, to see your work in my life and in my family and in my home. So I want to encourage you today, would you continue to strike the ground in prayer, so to speak? Would you continue to strike the ground in obedience? Would you continue to strike the ground by standing on the promises of God? And I wonder today, is God calling you to strike the ground is that image resonating with you and you're saying, God, I've, in some ways I've given up. And there is a, a refueling of my desire to know you and to stand on your promises today. Why don't we stand this morning? We're just going to pray before we go.